Our scripture reading this afternoon is Revelation chapter 1. If you have a pew Bible, that's page 1,218. Revelation chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So this ends the reading of God's word, which we do take for truth inspired by the Lord himself. Congregation beloved of the Lord Jesus Christ, The book of Revelation was written by the Apostle John in a time of persecution. Verse 9 tells us that uh, the church suffered, and John, who was in exile as an old man at this time, uh, he also suffered. He was on the island of Patmos, about 100 kilometers offshore from Ephesus, a small rocky island. And John was writing to the churches in the Roman province of Asia, that's Western Turkey uh, these days, and the Romans persecuted them. The government was, uh, was from Rome. It was about 1,000 kilometers from these Asian churches. Uh, how much they were persecuted depended on the emperor. Uh, sometimes within one emperor, there could be a change of attitude. Uh, it varied. And so you can be sure that in these churches, they were listening for rumors or for scraps of news from Rome about what might be coming. Rome had exiled 
the Apostle John? What else could be happening? In congregation, this is not the first time that a, that a, a government has turned from tolerating the church to persecution. It wasn't the last time, and it will not be the last time. If you're keeping your ears open to understand the times today, to hear the latest from the governments, to ask questions about what's next, you might have some of the same questions in your head as we can imagine were in the heads of the Asian Christians at that time. What will be next? Things seem to be getting worse, not better. What do we make of this? Is Jesus King of Kings and Lord of Lords? If he is, how can he allow evil to increase seemingly unopposed? If he has all authority in heaven and earth, how does that fit in with this situation? If he promised to build the church so that the gates of hell would not prevail against it, then why did it appear, at least at this time, that the church was at the risk of being snuffed out? And if not snuffed out, at least being restricted and reduced. Well, the Lord gave the church this book, Revelation, so that the church would have an idea of how to think about these sorts of questions. How do we respond to them? So in Revelation, the Lord comforts God's people. And the way that he does that is by putting the occurrences on earth in perspective. He gives us a view, sort of pulling back a curtain to look into heavenly realities to see what is going on there. And what is there? Jesus is sitting on the throne and we find that with his government, things on earth are very directly related to his government in heaven. The church may undergo hardship, even terrible hardship, but that is not beyond the design and the control of the Lord. On the contrary, he's on the throne and his people <clears throat> will join him there. So there are a series of glimpses in the book of Revelation and this afternoon, we will occupy ourselves with the first of these, and that's in the latter half of Revelation chapter 1. So we will be looking, and we have a theme of Christ's presence in purity and power. And we'll be going through the second half of this chapter really in three passes. First, at a bit of a surface level of what's there. So what is revealed by the vision here? And then... We're going to go back. This vision refers to prophecies from Daniel. So how this is supported by prophecy in our second pass. And then finally, how this is experienced by his church. Christ's presence in purity and power. And so we want to think about purity and power, first of all. When someone is robbed, I want you to think about someone being robbed and he calls for the police what is he after with the police? He's after the power of the law, isn't he? The power that is applied in the way of law keeping, in the way of justice. When I talk about purity, I'm talking about justice and righteousness and goodness. Uh, so the police have this power of the law, a law that, uh, a power that we hope will be applied in a good way. The robber, he has power, but he's not applying it in a good way. This is why you have a problem. Uh, the person being robbed, he may be a very good person. He may not have, he may be in the right, but that doesn't help him. So he may be pure, but that is of no advantage to him. And what is needed is someone who will step in, someone who's above that situation with the power of the law to set things right. Someone who is powerful and who is good. Powerful and pure. And you can see how this illustration applies to the church in, in, uh, in the days of Revelation 1. The Roman government was persecuting the church. They had the power. They were abusing the power. The church may have had good intents in many ways, but how did that help them? They could not extricate themselves from the power of the Roman government and what they really needed was someone who's able to step in and rectify this situation. So, 
in a sense, this vision of Revelation 1 answers that need, purity and power. We'll look first at uh, the wording of verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega. And at the end of verse 17, I am the first and the last. The first and the last. And the Lord is reminding us of Isaiah 43, verse 10. Before me, there was no God form, nor shall there be after me. I, even I am the Lord, and besides me, there's no, no Savior. So this vision is a vision of the Lord God of Israel, who revealed himself in Christ. It's of the God of Israel who always showed himself strong on behalf of his people throughout the centuries. And even when there was an appearance for periods of time that God was sitting back, perhaps is he still interested, even when there was that appearance, centuries of opposition at times from Satan, the Lord always came through. In the end, he took on flesh. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross, payment for our sins. He rose again, victorious over death. He came, he stepped in. Even when there were doubts among God's people, he was faithful. He came in pure and powerful. So historically, the Lord proved this to be true already. This is the one who is speaking here. And we're going to look at these two aspects, purity and power. Um, we're looking at the symbolism of what's here. These, there are many symbols in this chapter, and it's easy to go wrong with symbolism. There are sometimes disagreements with uh, particulars of what these symbols mean. And we're going to look at the big picture of what these symbols mean. I think that's going to be pretty clear. There is symbolism that describes purity, symbolism that describes power. And the first thing that we see, looking in, uh, in verse 13, one like the Son of Man clothed with a long robe. Well, this word long robe, it's unique in the New Testament, but it would have been known to those who heard the Old Testament read in their language this is a word usually used to describe the high priest's clothing. So you can't think of a high priest without thinking of someone, uh, the holiness, with the holiness and the purity required to enter into God's holy place. In verse 14, the hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. Well, we think of whiteness itself being symbolic of purity and having white hair, there's old age and there's uh, the generalization. With good living, with pure living comes old age. Verse 14 as well. His eyes are like a flame of fire. The Lord is of purer eyes than to behold evil. Habakkuk 1.13. He cannot look on iniquity. And here it does appear. Evil must give way under his gaze. It will be burnt away. Verse 16, his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. You know, the sun can cleanse and bleach things. It makes things look better and cleaner. Uh, Christ's face is called strong sunshine, the sun shining in his strength. It purifies in the direction it's pointed. It causes darkness to flee. So we have an idea of purity here, holiness. But there's also power. In verse 13, there's a golden sash around his, test, his chest, and that's probably the belt of a king. Uh, kings wore their belts up high. They were seated, sitting on their throne. Ordinary working folks, they had to wear their belt lower, hike their clothes up out of the way when they were working. The king wore a higher ornamental belt, a sash made of gold, indicating he had power, he had resources at his disposal. Verse 15, his feet are like burnished bronze. You know the expression feet of clay, weak feet. 
and the image, the, uh, the image of Nebuchadnezzar, his dream, impure feet, right? Iron mixed with clay. But here, there are feet of burnished bronze, very strong. Uh, they're able to trample down his enemies. Verse 15, his voice is like the roar of many waters. And there's an, there are more allusions to the Old Testament, Jeremiah 10, 13. He utters his voice. There's a multitude of waters in heaven. And what's the result? It's rain, cataclysm, thunder, lightning, wind. As the disciples said, even the wind and the seas obey him. He is powerful. Verse 16. In his right hand, seven stars. Out of his mouth, a sharp two-edged sword. Well, here is power The seven stars, power to protect, a sharp two-edged sword, power to destroy, power to harm. He has the power to protect the messengers of the churches, which are called stars here. He has the power to harm those who oppose him. This sword is a two-edged sword. This is referring to a broad sword that's used in battle. It's for cutting down enemies. And finally, verse 18 I have the keys of death and hell. There's no greater authority, there's no greater power than to deliver someone from death and hell or to commit someone to death and hell. So there's a vision of purity and power. These are some of the dominant ideas very simply. Is Christ equal to the challenge of the Roman government? And the answer is yes. He's able to defeat evil, and he's determined to defeat evil. Holiness is just part of his nature. He's able and faithful. And this allows his church to set their mind at ease. He has authority. He's purely motivated to use that authority for the salvation of his church. And this is not only so that the church of the first century can set their minds at ease, but so that the church of today can also ease their minds. The answer to ungodly power is in the greater power of Jesus Christ. He's not overcome. He's not intimidated by the actions of the world. He stands above it all. Because not is all as it appears in this world. And with the eyes of faith, you can see the reality of this vision that worldly powers are dwarfed next to the pure power of Christ. So it has always been safe to trust in him. Those words of Isaiah 26, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. In a time of persecution, believers can have peace and comfort because of this power of Christ and his interest in what is good. Now, we develop this a little further in our second point. We're going to talk about the place of prophecy because the things that the Lord reveals here in this vision, these are not new things. These are things that were spoken hundreds of years earlier in the book of Daniel, Daniel 7 and Daniel 10. And the fact that In Revelation 1, the Lord is referring back to these things means reinforcement, for one thing. He's repeating what was said in the past. But it also draws the mind back to those things said in Daniel 7 and Daniel 10. What else is said there? What's the context there? How does that inform me? Well, in Daniel 7 and 10, the Lord's describing... What's going to happen? He's prophesying about the future, his purposes that are going to happen. What are those purposes? Daniel 7 verse 9 is our first passage, and that's where the Ancient of Days is described. He's got this garment as white as snow and hair like wool, just as we have it here in Revelation 1. It's in the middle of a vision of four kingdoms, and those kingdoms are Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. And if Rome sounds familiar, that's the government of this Roman province where these churches are. 
Daniel 7, 9, thrones are put in place. The ancient of days, that's God, is seated on one of the thrones and judgment takes place. The beast is killed, his dominion's taken away. And the son of man, Christ comes. He receives dominion and power and kingdom and glory. And then in verse 18 of Daniel 7, the saints will receive the kingdom won for them by Christ. So this is a prophecy about overcoming four kingdoms, including Rome. Now in Daniel 7:19, Daniel asks specifically about the fourth kingdom, which is Rome, and he's told it will persecute, and the saints will be in its hand for a while, but there is a reassurance there will be a judgment, and the saints will receive the kingdom. So when Christ appears as the Lord of Daniel 7 in Revelation 1, he's turning the mind of the church to think about the things that go along with that vision in Daniel 7. Not only is Christ able to deliver them, but it's part of Christ's purpose to bring them through this. He had warned them this would happen, to prepare for terrible trouble, specifically from the kingdom of Rome. So all was going according to the word of God, and therefore don't despair, because the kingdom will be given to the saints. Do not doubt. And this is directly reinforcing that message of Revelation 1, the persecution of Rome, as persecution today does not mean that Christ has come off the throne. On the contrary, he sovereignly ordained for this to happen many years ago for his own reasons. He revealed this, and it might not be comfortable for God's people to go through persecution. It's definitely uncomfortable. But they can receive comfort from the knowledge they need only trust in the Lord, and he will give them the kingdom that he has won for them. So the Lord spoke in prophecy very clearly and specifically about the situation in Rome. When the, when the church was asking questions, God didn't give them a different answer than he had revealed in the past. Uh, the church needs to live by faith in the word that God has already revealed and so in a sense, God points back to the word he's already written to encourage his saints. Don't panic, live by faith. Now the other main quote is from Daniel 10, verses five and six. The man clothed with linen, um, girded with gold, his face like lightning, his eyes like torches of fire. And in Daniel 10, is described, Daniel sees something about how bad the situation can become. When he sees the vision of it, he falls down on his face and he needs to be comforted by this angel that comes to him with a comforting touch. And he's encouraged. He's given a message. And we should understand this message is not only for Daniel because in Revelation 1, refers to this from Daniel because it's for the churches to understand this message is for them. They are greatly loved, says this messenger to Daniel. They are to be instructed. They are to be exhorted. They are to be strengthened by the touch of the Lord. The church receives the same exhortation. Fear not, peace be to you, be strong. Yes, be strong. These are the words of Daniel. And as we read further in Daniel chapter 11, there are details, many details about these kingdoms. Many will fall to refine and purify them and make them white until the time of the end. And chapter 12 verse 1 speaks of a time of trouble such as never was before and at that time God's people will be delivered. So this goes far beyond the first century, the churches in Asia, 
to whom John was writing. This extends to the end of this age. God said it would be bad, and it could be very bad. But endure, because everyone found written in the book will be delivered. So what's the sum of this? The images from Daniel's prophecy show Christ can deliver, but there will still be persecution. And it can be very, very bad. Now, the churches in Asia had prophecies specifically for them. Christ in Revelation 1 used the book of Daniel, what he said before. You need to believe what I wrote in the, in the book of Daniel. But it says something to you as well. You live in a world where there is much uncertainty, where there is much decline. There's still much prophecy that needs to be fulfilled. You need to believe it, be comforted by it, strengthened by it, exhorted by it. Don't forget it, as the churches in Asia seem to have been doing. Remember it. Learn to live by it. See, we can think we live in a time of fulfilled prophecy. Jesus has come. He's poured out his spirit. We're in this New Testament age. And the Lord will return, but that's sometime for the future. And that's going to work itself out when he comes. And it's all going to be good news when he comes. And I don't need to think too much about that. But we look forward to that full accomplishment of Christ's redemption. And there are prophecies given to us for a reason about how things will be. You need only go back to the Garden of Eden. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. There will be this clash between the world and the church. Evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse. Scoffers will come in the last days. A man of sin will deceive many. Even the elect would be deceived if it were possible. Christ said terrible affliction is going to come. Daniel 12 still applies. There will be a unique time of trouble. Jesus said, men's hearts will fail them for fear. But lift up your head because your redemption draws near. It's at that time that God's people will be delivered. So how important it is to remember the word of Christ about his return Think of the times Christ spoke to his disciples about his return. He told them, watch and pray. Do not get distracted from my return. Don't get sidetracked. He's assured us the days will not be easy. But if we continue to hope in him, continue to watch and pray, deliverance surely will come. So Christ is pure and powerful. He's fit and able to judge the nations, but the prophecies teach us Christ will defer some of that. He's saying, not yet. So what is Christ doing in the meantime? And that is our third point. Christ's presence in purity and power as experienced by his church. In Revelation 1.13, in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, Christ is amid the churches. Chapter 2, verse 1, describes him as walking among the seven golden lampstands. He's present and he's active. How is Christ present and active with his church? Well, it's not by wiping out every opposition. How is he present? We're going to work through this passage and see. In verses 9 and 10, John says he was suffering for Christ's sake 
and Christ revealed himself to him. Christ ministered to suffering John by revealing himself. He doesn't forsake his saints in their trials. And let's look at how he did this. First in verse 10, John made a point of mentioning this was on the Lord's day. Why would somebody mention the Lord's day? Because it is significant. The Lord used the Lord's day to comfort and to strengthen John. But what was revealed on the Lord's day in verse 10? I heard behind me a loud voice. He heard words. In verse 12, John turned to see the voice, which might be a figure of speech, but it is a little unusual way to speak, to turn to see a voice, a prophet receiving the word by revelation that would often come in the form of a vision, but it would be turned into words. It would be written down in words, as verse 11 says, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. So Christ's appearance to John was not only for John, it was for the churches as well. But the form, there was a vision to John, but not all received the vision. The vision was so that there could be scripture, and then scripture went to the churches. The churches got words. The churches, even at this time already, were to live by the word of God inscripturated. When would the churches receive the word? They would receive it when they were gathered to hear it. And when would they gather to hear it, these churches in Asia? They would gather on the Lord's day. So the ministry of Christ in the days of persecution was not only to John on the Lord's day, it was to the churches on the Lord's day. Christ reveals himself to his assembled people on the Lord's Day, as he has done since he set Sunday apart. He did it on Easter Sunday, rising from the dead and appearing to his disciples. Again, a week later, he set this pattern as he, the next Sunday, he revealed himself again. Then on Pentecost Sunday, he revealed himself as the one who poured out the Spirit on the nations. And then throughout the book of Acts and afterward, as the church met repeatedly on Sunday and preached the word, Christ revealed himself in the word. And so on the Lord's day, Christ would take his word to the churches of Asia and reveal himself to them in the proclamation of the word. And this is what Christ does today. So what is Christ's answer to that decline that we spoke of, the, the turmoil of the world, of the world and the oppositions of the world? What is Christ's answer to persecution? Well, in one sense, you could say it is to see this vision of Christ, this uh, Christ who is pure and powerful, to whom worldly powers mean nothing. But you can go a level deeper, and you can say, what is Christ's answer to persecution? It is go to church. Hear the word of God preached. Be reminded of the greatness of Jesus Christ. See him exalted with the eyes of faith. See him sovereignly in control, working out all things according to his good pleasure. See him promising deliverance to all who trust in him. In church, he speaks to us. We receive comfort and instruction from his mouth. Now, when you have this understanding of how the Lord meets with his people in a special way on the Lord's day to comfort and instruct them, then you take advantage of the opportunities you have. And in a time of confusion, a time of deceit, a time of conflicting messages threatening around us, the ministry of the Lord in the gathered church, that is something to seek out every opportunity you can. So yes, Christ is present with his people, but 
that presence you experience flowing through the ministry of his word to the gathered church. That is how the spirit of God works in the gathered church to set their hearts on the right things and to set their hope in God. So that is one sense of how Christ is present with his people. We're going to look at this from a different angle now. How is Christ present with his people? Jesus speaks first and foremost to his people. Christ presented himself in a vision of power and purity to his people. Certainly, he can defeat the power of sin in the world. What about the power of sin in the church? Can he defeat this? Does the church believe this? And do you believe that he's able to defeat the power of your sin? Christ is in the, in the business of building his church through the ministry of the church. Christ didn't send Caesar a letter. He didn't send anyone in the Roman government a letter. He sent letters to his churches because his business is, first of all, to build his church. And it can be easy to criticize others outside the church knowing that Christ, who is pure and powerful, will judge their sins. But anyone who truly believes in such a Christ will concern himself, first of all, with purity at home. Here is Christ revealed to you. He has eyes like flames of fire. He's powerful and pure. He's your Lord who appears before you. What are we by comparison? Do we not say we are undone and we need him? Anyone who believes that Christ is against sin will believe Christ is against sin. The Lord calls us to be holy as he is holy. This is the emphasis in the book of Revelation. We might think, well, Christ needs to put down evil in the world so that the church can develop. He doesn't need to do that. His first priority is to cleanse the church of evil, to encourage her in godliness. Without this, the church loses her testimony of Christ, and it's through the testimony of Christ that the world is overcome. The power of the church is not in removing the sword of Rome. It's in testifying of the power of Christ's blood to forgive and save from sin. Now, political deliverance, you know, when Jesus came the first time, that's what many were looking for. And they were less interested in what Christ came to do for them, to deliver them from the shackles of sin. They wanted to be rid of the secular government. We can smugly look back at them. We can call them Pharisees. We can say they were wrong and misguided. Congregation, do we do the same thing today? Is our emphasis on what Christ ought to do in the world and not what he's promised to do in his church? Do we sometimes in the church say persecution and suffering? Well, Jesus came. He conquered death. He's sitting on the throne. That must not be from me. I can't imagine he would allow one of his children to go through the indignities.
Christ walked the footsteps of terrible indignity. And we are called to walk in his footsteps. That suffering will continue until the end. If you are anxious, if you are despairing about whether Christ is building the church because the standing of the church seems to be shaky in the world, could it be that you're looking for a church builder who will do it your way instead of in the way of God's sovereign ordinance? Do you want someone who considers dealing with sin in the world more important than dealing with sin in the church? Christ is not that way. It's interesting to read the letters to the seven churches in chapter 2, chapter 3 of Revelation. Nowhere does Christ mention persecution by the Roman government as a problem that the church should have done something about. It's the whole context of the book is their persecution. Nowhere does he say they should have done something about it. He cares about the church's purity. He doesn't want the church to have power with Rome. He wants the church to have power with God. Christ's purity and power, which will one day judge the world righteously, is not here directed at the world. It shows up in the letters to the churches. This is where Christ's righteous kingdom is revealed, first of all, is in his church. His purity and power are a great comfort to those who want to live godly and who are suffering for Christ's sake. They are a great discomfort to those in the church who love sin. If we would like Christ to do something about the direction that the world is headed, is it because we don't want the spotlight on our own sin? Remember, congregation, what this picture is, how it began in verse 13. The high priest in the middle of the seven candlesticks. Do you know the high priest's job in the Old Testament? What was his job with the seven lamps? He had to trim the lamps every day so they would give a good light. What is Christ, your high priest, doing? He's trimming the churches, the lights of the world to give a good light and to encourage that, in each, in, the, in each letter to a church, Christ says there's an overcoming that needs to happen. The overcoming is not in a battle against Rome. It's not a battle against flesh and blood. The overcoming is a battle against your own sin. It's a battle against sin inside the church. And the battlefield may change. Sometimes... The governments will be very tolerant. Sometimes they will persecute. The battle and the enemy are basically the same. It's as you fight this battle, as you find victory in Christ, that you can testify joyfully of the saving power of Jesus Christ, the one who is powerful and pure, and he exercises that power in the way of gentleness and kindness and grace to all who acknowledge their sin and repent of it and turn to him and ask him to forgive them. Now, there are some who might say, the Lord is not very kind. He puts his people through troubles. But the Lord is kind, especially in the most important things. All the struggles of your soul, he is so kind. He cannot hear you say that you are sorry for your sins and you need forgiveness 
without lavishing forgiveness and mercy upon you, no matter where you are, whether it's a comfortable situation or uncomfortable. He cannot help it. And who of us would say that the Lord was unkind, that God was unkind to his son to send him in the world, to take on human flesh, to live in a world of opposition and suffer at their hands the death that he died? Was God unkind? He gave him a name above every name because it was a glorious mission that he fulfilled. And to us, that godly living in the midst of opposition and giving up your life and laying it down for God's cause, there is no more noble way. It's a kindness, in a sense, to be given that calling. It's a kindness to be driven away from the godlessness that would destroy you, from sin that will destroy you. It is a kindness to be set against the world, to be called to a holy life, even if it means that there will be opposition, even if it means that there will be persecution. The Lord is, is kind. He knows our sins. He knows our frame, that we are dust. But he will hear us, and he calls us again and again. Cast yourself upon me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. I will forgive you. I will help you. My word and my spirit will strengthen you and set you in the right path. So the Lord is in the business of building his church. And without this grace and love and mercy from him, where would the church go? It would dissipate. The Lord builds his church. He continues to build it, even in the face of opposition and persecution. And that is how powerful he is. He is not diverted from that purpose by whatever intimidations the world attempts. He will judge the world in due time. In the meantime, understand, persecutions will come. Times will be bad. We don't know when or how bad. It will happen. Trust Christ, who calls you to gather with his saints on the Lord's day to receive the word of his grace by which you may live. Perfect holiness in the fear of the Lord. No one is able to do this church building work except Christ himself who loves you and is gracious to you and his kindness itself. Christ alone in his purity and power will forgive your sins as it says to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood in verse 5. This is who is speaking to you, who has revealed himself. He loves you. He's freed you from your sins. He is pure and powerful and present with his people through the ministry of the word and the power of his spirit to make it happen. And when Christ's church building work is done, he will come. The powers of the world will just be destroyed by the brightness of his coming. And on that day, it will be seem so simple the Father's good pleasure to give you his kingdom and every tear will be wiped away. All those sorrows will be forgotten. You sit in Christ in heavenly places enjoying that name that is above every name which we should praise also today. Amen. Let us pray. Lord God Almighty, You've given us a great Savior. A wonderful Savior is Jesus, my Lord. And <clears throat> his, uh, his power is incomparable. And uh, the zeal that he has for his church 
the zeal that he has for what is right and good is also incomparable. We would despair. We would tire. We would fail if it were not for the strength of Christ and the zeal for his own people. Lord, you are powerful. The oppositions of the nations are nothing to you. You can build your church in the middle of persecution. And we who sometimes think we need a breather in order to take stock and to set our, set our lives straight again, we need to depend more upon your power your strength, your word. We need to trust in you to see that you've given us these things all to glorify yourself. As we suffer a little now, we pray that your grace would be with us to look to you, seated on the throne in heaven. And Lord, if those days come in our lifetime when we suffered terribly, then we pray that we may have the presence of mind to continue adhering to each other, uh, adhering to the word, as we gather together, as we sit under it every week, uh, we pray that you'll strengthen your church and build it. Uh, we ask that you would be gracious and forgive us our sin. When we've trusted in idols, when we've t- cast the attention away from ourselves, when we've looked at the might that is in someone else's eye and ignored the log that is in our own, uh, we pray that you'll uh, sanctify us and use us for your glory. Help us to uh, fill our mouths with that word of testimony by which the church overcomes the world. The blood of the lamb and the word of the testimony. We thank you for them both and we receive from you uh, your grace in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing number 244. This is a mighty fortress is our God. And this is a good thing to remember in a time of, uh, of persecution. But no matter what the time, we know that Satan has designs against us. And in times of outright persecution, they may be overt. But in times when uh, there is no such outright persecution, it can be much more subtle. Satan even talked into Peter's ear who said for Christ not to go to the cross. So the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His doom is sure, one little word shall fell him. Let's sing 244.